0: This week's episode, Nancy and I are discussing a paper that was suggested to us by a listener who also is the author of today's paper. So we got a message from Rita Siri, and it says Hi, I love the podcast and tune in regularly for my equine research fix. I noticed on one of your last podcasts that you were looking to revisit some of your older topics to see how the field was changing. Just thought I'd drop you a line about a recent publication regarding practitioners perspectives of equine assisted services. So thank you so much, Rita, for writing in. Me and Nancy are constantly looking for research and to update research. And we have mentioned this on a couple of podcasts that we are definitely at a stage now a couple of years in where there should be some updates so far. So Excitingly, we're going to cover today's paper, which is an exploratory study into the backgrounds and perspectives of equine-assisted service practitioners. And this is by Rita Siri and Deborah Wells. And this paper, the simple summary is that horses are being increasingly incorporated into health and well-being treatments and interventions. And these equine-assisted services, which we're gonna refer to as EASs, these vary widely in both theoretical and practical applications. However, until now, the experiences and perspectives of the practitioners of these services have received little attention. So to address this gap in knowledge, EAS practitioners were asked to complete a survey exploring the service they provide, practice patterns, background education, perceived knowledge, challenges faced, and any issues moving forwards. Practitioners' backgrounds were found to have a significant influence on both the type of equine-assisted service provided and respondents' perceived knowledge. Most of the practitioners received training that was specific to the service they provided, with block release being a common trend. Just under half the sample had received under 20 days of training. Horse-specific training was relatively uncommon, and practitioners reported client and horse welfare, financial sustainability, and raising awareness as the most important challenges facing their service. This study highlights the diversity within the field of equine-assisted services and the challenges faced by the practitioners, as well as possible opportunities for growth. More progress is needed to support practitioners in order to grow, professionalize and legitimize these services. And this was a really nice read, actually, a very interesting paper. It's open access, isn't it, Nancy?
1: Yes, it is. And I'll be sure to put the link on the homepage.
0: Perfect. And this paper was, let me see, it was published January Mm -hmm. 2024, so it is hot off the press, as we would say. Um, The only thing, sorry, I wanted to clarify from the simple summary is where it mentions um, the training and said that, let me see, most practitioners receive training specific to the service they provided with block release being a common trend. Just to explain the term block release, that is where um, there is essentially a block of teaching and then a block of practice that's carried out based on the teaching. So it's like intensive teaching than intensive practice following. Um, to highlight, I suppose, a little bit better about what they actually covered. But it was interesting for a number of reasons and I liked their design and actually how it correlates a little bit with the, the general survey results that we found also in our survey when it comes to listenership and the age of listeners and with older listeners being less likely to actually report on surveys.
1: Yeah, and you know, I really appreciated the fact that um, it was their tables were so easy to read and um, the demographics were 94% of the respondents were female. And Kate, you and I kind of got the same result in our podcast summary, our survey
0: yeah i think it is it definitely seems to be moving that way in a lot of the research papers we look at where it is a more female driven um industry it seems
1: yep yeah. yeah and then uh 59.5% were 50 years plus mm-hmm. in the response. that surprised me that surprised me too and in, in that um you know i like the way the paper explained that perhaps the uh, 50-plus-year-olds get into the therapy because they're into their, like, second Mm -hmm. occupation. They've maybe um, worked in another industry for so many years and then opted to get into the therapy business in their later years. So that was kind of an interesting concept as well. But, Kate, you know what really surprised me is that... um, It was so odd that so many of them did not have horse experience, like 41% did not have horse experience. And to me, that's a little bit questioning the safety because you don't understand horses and you're maybe putting, um, you know, a handicapped or physically challenged, I should say, um, person on your therapy horse, you kind of can read the facial um, and the behavior patterns of the horse to maybe avert an accident happening. That, That statistic really stuck out at me.
0: I also think if you are horse familiar and horse trained, an adjunct to that is not just reading the horse, but reading the environment and kind of picking up on the cues of things that might spook a horse. And I know the horses that are used in these therapies are I suppose what we we would call almost like um, as safe as possible, I guess. We can't, you know, we can't put all our money ever on betting that a horse is not going to spook and the horses are highly trained. um, But you still you just need to be as aware as possible of their behavior, how they could possibly react novel introductions into the environment because there is so much more involved especially when you have someone who might not be as capable on the back of the horse that's you know as you said nancy the risk when it comes to it having been briefly involved in therapeutic riding and um, i volunteered before as a handler it's an incredible incredible experience to be a part of and to see actually the impact the horses have on these service users that do these therapies like this is an integral part of the horse industry that I think hasn't maybe been highlighted as much Um, and it's definitely something that we should maybe talk about more and bring more to the forefront but it's great to see papers that are looking on the practitioner side now as well because I guess we were always focusing on the side of the user and the effects it has on the service user and not so much about where the intricacies lie with the training and the knowledge and the people behind providing the service. And certainly from the past, what I've found in my experience was it was people that had an interest in horses that signed up to these courses and that would volunteer for them. that actually would have lacked maybe more of the training with the people. Um, But that might just be those isolated cases that I've seen. So it was interesting to see that. Like that really was surprising that they had less horse experience.
1: I was, yeah. And, you know, I feel the way you do, Kate. I've also volunteered uh, in therapeutic riding as a leader, which you're leading the horse you're not dealing with the patient and um a lot of times you know i let the physical therapist deal with the patient now in america or in the united states we do have path international Uh, accreditations. And that's kind of important because if you're doing physical therapy, you need a licensed physical therapist in your therapy program, but you also need people to be accredited with PATH International. And um, I was surprised in this paper, the amount of of, um, people in the therapy business that don't get I guess certifications that are accredited and over here if you want to get paid through the insurance company you have got to make sure all your services um, you're accredited you're licensed and then you can submit that patient's um, you know I guess, uh, record of therapy for payment. So it's a little bit, I think, different here. It's, I think there are a lot of therapy places that are more or less pony rides without having a licensed physical therapist or. Um, accredited people, but then you cannot submit for payment So um, through an insurance company. Mm -hmm. So I I think we've talked about this before. Um, When we did the number one episode for many years was the one we did on anxiety and therapy horses. And remember, it talked about teenagers during COVID, how when the countries opened up again, they had social anxieties because of the isolation that they experienced. And, um, you know, I mean, for that type of therapy, you almost do need someone that is a licensed um, psychiatrist or psychologist. And then you're able to submit um, through a healthcare program. Um, you know, payment for that if it's covered under that program. So there's a little bit more to it, I think. And Kate, do you guys have um, like a national healthcare system in Ireland?
0: Um, so we do, we kind of have a combined, we pay private and then we do have a public that you can qualify for as well. So if you're oh. under a certain pay thresholds, um, but actually I think now that I'm thinking about it, you can go down the public route irregardless, I'm pretty sure. Um, it's Personally, I have, I have, I suppose, had the privilege of being able to get insurance. So I've been insured for many years, um, but you can go public as well. So we are quite, I suppose we're quite looking that way because I don't believe it's the same in the States.
1: Yeah, we have private, but we also have um public as well, but we're in like uh you know there's that marketplace type of thing. So um a lot of family policies um they don't cover equine assisted therapy and then some do. Well if they cover it you do need to be a licensed physical therapist if your child yeah. you know veteran, if it's a wounded warrior. That, um then that insurance will cover that otherwise you just pay directly out of your pocket for those services but you know i really agreed with something this paper said and rita you did such a great job this was a lovely read it was easy to read and the best part it's open access so all of our listeners can read it and um, maybe even give us their thoughts on it but um You said there was a lack of uniform technology, so it was recommended um, to break it down into three types of therapy, which was equine-assisted therapy, equine-assisted learning, and then horsemanship, and I thought that would be a great idea because so many of the programs just do on the ground. They don't Mm -hmm. do mounted exercises are therapy. So that's um, a big kind of um, issue with being able to be licensed through Path International. So they even have driving therapists where you can take a, maybe a person has high anxiety, and they need to spend time with horses, but they don't want to ride. They're tired of groundwork so then now you can hitch up and take them along as a passenger and teach them um, how to drive so i thought that was kind of neat so
0: i think that's the beauty of an equine assisted therapy as well is that where you've got people who talking about the problem can be very triggering um Delving into those types of traditional therapies, I guess, can be very triggering and maybe put them in a dangerous place for themselves. Introducing them to an equine therapy means that they're just grounding with the horse. They're just listening to their body, listening to the horse's body. It's not asking them to explain, you know, the problem or what's happened or the whatever it is that they're struggling with. It's just the connection and the focus and the breathing, and it, that's what makes such a difference in the beginning and the initial stages when it is used for things like anxiety or um, post-traumatic stress. And in this as well, it did mention, which I thought was really interesting. So increasing, when we talked about um, that the practitioners, some of them didn't have a lot of horse knowledge, they found that if you increase the training time for equine assisted services, that still may not be sufficient to improve equine or service related knowledge. So they mentioned another study by Rudd et al, which was 2022, found that a higher overall number of training sessions in volunteers registered at the EAS centers did not equate to better equine behavior identification But what did help with equine behaviour identification was the inclusion of equine-related health training. So that could be just equine health education, which encompasses teachings on normal, healthy horse behaviour alongside the behavioural indicators of disease, pain, stress. And it provides a more in-depth and relative learning and they found it improves positive and negative behavior recognition. So it's kind of like taking a step back and being like, okay, we need these people who provide the service to be educated in horses being used for the service. So then maybe we're hyper-focusing on educating on exactly what's done in the arena and exactly what's done in the barn instead of peeling it right back and looking at the overall husbandry and behavior of the horse because I think to me that stood out I if I was asked to design I suppose a course on this I don't think I would necessarily go back to the basics and think well you know we really should talk about disease prevention and talk about common diseases and common injuries and how all of these things are the little building blocks that round out that full knowledge of the horse and allow the practitioner to be more in Um. So I don't know if it's just me geeking out over that finding or not, but oh, I, I, I love when it's something that kind of challenges the way I think.
1: And and we can always bring up that Grimace scale, you know, yeah, I think 34% or 33.7 to be exact of uh, equine qualifications in this paper were qualified instructors but just because they were riding instructors did not mean they knew a lot about the grimace scale the uh ridden uh, signs of pain in a horse remember that ridden horse ethogram yes. so i think it was so smart to do equine health education for anybody involved because um, you know some people have been around horses as trainers and instructors, but that doesn't mean they know a lot about um, certain signs of discomfort. It's just kind of coming out now where um, especially the UK is focusing on the certain signs of discomfort and it's not always behavior you know so anyway I agree Kate I thought I was kind of focused on it too but I think it's because we're so focused on people recognizing when a horse isn't just acting up they're in pain
0: and they do mention as well about picking up on the horse's autonomy in this too which was nice They mentioned as well, actually, on the practitioners perceived challenges, which I thought was an important point, is that the equine assisted services practitioners themselves overwhelmingly regarded equine and client welfare very highly in terms of the challenges faced by those working in the services. So preserving that equine and client welfare was what they regarded as I suppose, the highest challenge faced. So there is an awareness there. and They also said awareness or recognition of the field by medical professionals was also seen as a particularly important challenge for most. And that was indicating the difficulties may exist with regards to referral from health professionals or social prescribing. So that ties in what you were saying too, Nancy, with the insurance, because if this isn't being used as a viable option, then maybe a lot of insurance companies wouldn't still cover this type of assisted therapy. Um, And you need to find, I suppose, a medical practitioner that does promote other methods of therapies as well and holistic methods too.
1: Yeah, I agree. And you know, um, know, we kind of were told about this paper because we wanted to update the riding therapy uh broadcast that we had done but i tell you what when it comes into the mental health and um category anxiety is still number one Uh, so people seek equine therapy because of anxiety issues and the large majority do so i thought that was a great table that they had. And that's one plus about this paper. I like the figures that um, illustrate their points. And then also Mm -hmm. that it's so easy to look at them and be able to, um, you know, kind of scroll down and see exactly what people are going um, to be treated for and why they're seeking equine assisted services.
0: And In their conclusion, they also mention that what would greatly help the equine-assisted service industry is the development of industry-wide core competencies. So this would be amazing to have a framework where there's competencies that need to be met to be able to be a practitioner that delivers one of these services and that this could also be a move towards professionalization and a consensus within equine assisted services would also signal to any funders or any policymakers that are incorporating horses into health and wellbeing services, that this is a viable treatment option and is one that has worked for many people. And actually, I suppose that would be an interesting point if we do have any listeners that um, were a service user of one of these services and would like to give us, I suppose, their take or their reflection on it and we can keep it entirely anonymous if i can say the word Um, (laughs) but it would be great if there are any listeners out there that have been on the other side because like nancy and i have volunteers as leaders and if there's any practitioners out there that listen what your thoughts on the paper were as well and it's just i think it's a great read i would definitely it's one of those papers that Nancy and I recommend if you want to sit down with a cup of tea and delve through.
1: Yeah, you know, I enjoyed it with, because of my association with Ride On St. Louis and um, you know, with COVID, they not only focused on, um, you know, the therapy was discontinued because you couldn't get together with people. And what they did was they took and went online into nursing homes. So they would have a camera, um, whether sometimes it might have just been an an iPad or an iPhone, and they would stream the horses into the nursing home so the patients could still visit with their favorite horse. And I thought, what a nice service. It was um, set up because these nursing homes would you know, come out in buses, just to get on a farm and be around horses was so therapeutic, especially for their dementia. And so uh, COVID hit and everybody was locked in their rooms, practically. And um, the director of Ride on St. Louis decided to stream the horses to them. So even that little concept um, was so helpful for people that were isolated during COVID. So um, definitely, you know, a service, I see the benefits of it. And, um, you know, this paper really hones in on the problems that practitioners encounter and I tell you one of them is financial because you know horses aren't cheap to take care of and you're constantly uh, trying to take care of them keep them healthy keep your clients safe and keep them showing up so uh, once again the horses become a working animal
0: that's a great point as well Nancy because these services that are provided are not provided to make profit like there will be some profit but then that's not the purpose like a lot of these are charities that are set up um and it is something that requires funding and it requires outside interest and i think it would just be an amazing thing to get those core competencies like they've said in this paper Rita and deborah and to be able to make um I suppose, a, a structured, more professionalism out of it, because these people are putting in the work already, the practitioners who are there. So to be able to give them the recognition for the work that they're doing and the accolades for it, and then try and drive it forward a little bit more and see how that can help with funding and policy making, like they mentioned, it's, it's a really interesting area that I think is definitely starting to grow since COVID.
1: Now, that's a good point to end on, Kate. I couldn't have said it any better. So um, I will have the link up. Thank you, Rita, for sending this in. Um, We are still looking into the genetic company research. Uh, It's kind of a tough area where no one has really done the research yet to see how accurate Um, the genetic testing can be on these commercial companies. And I've seen more and more ads on Facebook and Instagram to get your horse tested. It seems to me it's about as complicated as the dog genetic test as well, because in some instances there can be a lot of overlay. So Mm -hmm. anyway, if we come across a paper we'll definitely review it but so far it's been kind of tough to hone in and find genetic testing on a commercial uh type forum or um merchandise yeah
0: i suppose there's there's articles and things about it but to find a peer-reviewed paper that actually delves into it and is where we're coming up a little short at the moment but But i suppose stick with us (laughs) we'll try our best (laughs)
1: Well, and anybody keep sending in your research request, if the research is out there, we'll find it. Right, Kate?
0: <laughs> yes, we're more than happy to. That's this what we're living for on this podcast. So send all the research our way or even any topics. We've said this before. If you just have a broad topic and you want us to look into it, like we've covered some things like coat color in horses and how that affects behavior. So. Any area you're interested in, fire it over and we'll see what we can find.
1: Okay. Well, thanks so much, Kate.
0: Thanks, Nancy. See you next week. Take care.
1: You too. Bye-bye.